as the Lord returns, there are many events that have been given specific treatment in the scriptures. And our strategy in these sessions is to pull each of these events out and look at at each one specifically in some detail. Uh, Obviously, time does not uh, afford us um, the opportunity to deal with each of these things in extensive or excessive detail. The intent is not to be an encyclopedia of understanding in regards to each of these events, but rather to place them within the environment in which they occur, which is the time of the return of the Lord and the beginning of the millennial age. In doing so, in looking at each piece, we can have more understanding about where the subject matter originated in Scripture because the premise is that the book of Revelation represents the summation of all unfinished business in Scripture and the transition from earlier on physical events, events with an historic uh, component to it, to events that are spiritual, to the spiritual implications of them because in the greater understanding of everything, the physical is not the primary understanding. And in fact, if that's all you have and you attempt to superimpose the context of the return of the Lord upon it, you will will undoubtedly miss the mark. Because among other things, the return of the Lord is actually the point at which heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible realm, coincide. And whenever that happens, the reality of the eternal and the invisible is superimposed upon the visible. And everything we know about the visible submits to the reality of of the spiritual or the heavenly or the invisible. Now, it doesn't mean that the invisible will remain invisible. It means that it will, the invisible will dominate in form, function, and purpose the visible. So when the Lord returns, the Lord is now invisible, meaning He is shielded from our view by a veil the veil that is between heaven and earth, the veil between the visible and the invisible. Angels are not visible now, but they are real creatures. Those who have died are not visible now, but they are really alive. They're actually alive unto God. So in a day of resurrection, they become visible again in their appearing and returning with the Lord. But obviously, I mean, anybody could see that that's a changed environment. It's somewhat like when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and the days he spent on the earth, the 40 days he spent on the earth before his ascension. 
everything he did was visible, but none of it abided by the norms of the visible. He could walk through walls, suddenly appear and disappear. Yet he could eat fish with his disciples, and while they beheld, he was taken up without strings, wires, pulleys, or special effects. So the point is when the eternal, when, when, when the invisible realm comes into the visible realm, it is visible, but it changes everything. Now, what prepares us to have understanding of what these things mean is what the history of the the recurring history of these things meant before. So in the last uh, session we talked about Armageddon and the the origin of, of that word and placed it back in the book of Judges, the fourth and fifth chapters, where this great battle was fought uh, in the northern part of Israel for the survival of Israel. Israel itself is a type and shadow of the body of Christ. Jerusalem is the physical city of Jerusalem, is a type and shadow of the new Jerusalem. And more to the point, the operational headquarters of and housing for, and in fact is even analogized to the actual body of Christ, which is not a physical building because he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands because he's prepared his own temple. He dwells among and within his people. So, you know, uh, the word Jerusalem itself, uh, the, 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 the root component is shalom. So it's the city of peace. So it's more the characteristic of the environment of his rule than it is an actual structure. But I'll come to that uh, next. I'll come to that in the next uh, or one of the subsequent uh, teachings. But for now I want to go back and I want to pick up on this portion that says, when the Lord returns and as the returning of the Lord comes, verse 20, verse, uh, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation verse 1 begins in the following way, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, in case you wonder who's this dragon, it describes it. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Now this is the second time in the book of Revelation that Satan is defined so fully in this way. The first is in the twelfth chapter of the book of Revelation when he refers to uh, the Satan give, uh, giving his power, his throne and great authority to the beast and defines him as that ancient serpent, the devil and Satan who was cast out. 
So now we see him again, and he, he, and this is really what I want to talk about, the progression of the demise of Satan. From great archangel, standing in the presence of God, to his final destruction. And we want to, we want to map the trajectory of Satan through the scriptures. And I, I want to do this in principal part to identify his role as the deceiver, to talk about how effective he is as a deceiver, and to speak about how foolish mankind is or would be to fall for his deception because whoever is deceived by him ends up pretty much like him. Although in the moments of their glory they seem to triumph. You know, people often say, if I knew how it was going to turn out, I would not have made that choice. And yet, most people make the wrong choice to follow Satan regularly. In fact, he deceives more people by far and lead them to their destruction than than the number of those who are saved and who come to Christ and who are conformed to His his likeness and His image. It's an amazing, an amazing tragedy unfolding in full view of humanity. He was laid a hold of this devil or Satan, the ancient serpent, and was bound for a thousand years. Notice he's not destroyed here, he's bound for a thousand years cast into the pit and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while because his work is not done yet and his mischief is not complete yet. He has been used in creation to perfect the scope of choice. One of the great truths about human beings, about God certainly, and about the creation, the sentient creation, both angels and humans, is that God does not force anyone to serve Him. He could, but you'd have no real purpose. You'd be no better than rocks that roll or fire that burns or wind that blows. Disembodied functions. But God has given to sentient creatures, and those would be of two categories, humans, and angels. 
the subcategory of demons being within the category of humans. God gave everyone the right to choose. The end of the age, of course, is the summary and summarizing of choice. In other words, what you chose, whatever you chose, will be the basis of your judgment. In order for you to be judged and punished in some instances, or the greater hope, be rewarded amongst those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you must choose. And choice has to reflect your voluntary will. Choice has to reflect your intentionality. So if you follow Satan, that ancient serpent, the devil, the dragon, Satan, that's how he's defined, the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan. If you follow him in his decline from his original state to his precipitous decline, you're also able to track the consequences of free will. Humans are not only given free will, but they're attended by the consequences of those choices. We have, in God's hope, man was created to be a reflection and a carrier of the glory of God, man in the image and likeness of God. And all angels were created, all angels, inclusive of Satan, all angels were created to be the servants of the sons of God, servants of God and servants of the sons of God. We know that absolutely from the book of Hebrews, the first chapter, which says, Are not all angels ministering servants sent to serve the saints? Well then, when God created an angel to serve, did God create a bad angel? Did, you know, God clearly created Satan. There's no, um, no negotiating around that fact in Scripture. So the question people often ask is more at the end of a, a syllogistical process where they say, God created Satan, Satan was evil, did God create evil? Well, they're missing premises. This argument would be better served as an enthymeme, not as a syllogism. Uh, syllogisms being the invention of Plato, enthymemes being the invention of Aristotle. There's a missing premise, it's the meaning of the term enthymeme. 
E-N-T-H-Y-M-E-M-E, enthymeme. The missing premise is that of choice. God created Satan to serve God. Satan was given, like all angels and all humans, the right to choose. In the right to choose, God has to guarantee the function of choice. Choice is never choice if you can't choose to push back, if you can't choose to disobey, if you can't choose to reject, then you don't have choice. If all you can do is to follow the pre-programmed agenda, then you are an automaton. You're a thing. You're not a person. Fire doesn't have a choice but to consume. Wind doesn't have a choice but to blow. These are inanimate things. They're not attributed consequences. But angels and humans, or shall I say humans and angels in the order of rank, humans coming before angels, have the right to choose. Now, the scope of choice is different between humans and angels. Angels can only choose to serve or not to serve. That's the range of their choice because they were made to be angels, servants. All angels were created to serve not to rule, but to serve. Humans, on the other hand, from the time God conceived of them to the time He made them, had the choice to be the sons of God or those who rejected God in favor of their own ideas. Both creatures, humans and angels, came to that crisis point of choice in the Garden of Eden. Now, the choice of angels to not serve had been previously made and the conflict between angels and God came to earth with the creation of man, human beings, and their placement in the garden. So angels, certain angels had already decided to rebel against God and rebel against their design parameters. They were designed to serve but elected certain ones, not all and by no means the majority. The indications are that a third rebelled, whereas two-thirds remained faithful. Upon the decision of that one-third to rebel, God expelled them 
out of heaven and they came to be housed in the realm known as the second heavens. The highest heavens contain the throne of God whereupon sits the Lamb and in which location those who go to heaven when they die assemble to await the final events that we're speaking of here in the book of Revelation. In the Garden of Eden then, Satan comes to be the instrument to focus choice for human beings. Now his strategy was to put enmity between God and the sons of God so that they would seek independence from God and function in that independence. The language is specific. God knows, Satan said, that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of that tree, you'll become wise like God. You will be the standard. You will know good and evil. You can make the distinction. You are the standard between good and evil. He, he focused the choice for man, the result of which, of course, was separation from God. Now, who was Satan before? He had a name. The name was Lucifer and it's the origin of the term light or light bearer. And although he's analogized to both an Old Testament king and to Adam in a fallen state, he actually was that great and glorious creature, that angel among the archangels and perhaps was the preeminent archangel in rank. Again, don't make the mistake of thinking that a singular reference is the compendium of the whole picture. No, the, 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 the whole picture comes in multiple formats. Some have found biblical support for the idea that Adam was the light bearer. Clearly uh, in the book of Isaiah there is biblical support for a certain king being, or imagining himself to be like this great fallen one, the light bearer. But the, or, the origin, the original model was that ancient serpent referred to by his fallen state. All three or four references, the, the devil, the ancient serpent, um, uh, Satan, all three of these references, actually yes, all three, all four of these references, I missed the dragon. The dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan, all these are references to his fallen state. But he had a state before he fell. 
and he chose not to serve. And again, we could go into the details of why and what the argument was about that caused him to reject God, but there's no need for that. I've already deconstructed that many times over and that information is available. So in the garden, he comes to thwart the purposes of God for mankind and becomes the one who requires man to choose. Man chose poorly, and, but God knew that ahead of time and intended to redeem man inasmuch as the Lamb was slain from the foundations of the world. Now, Jesus remarked that He saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. So we have, we have biblical support for the idea that when he appears in the garden, he's already fallen. There's war in heaven and he was cast out. He came to the earth and he came to the second heavens from which he could go back and forth to the earth and from which eventually, that second heaven, he will be cast out into the earth. That's spoken of in Revelation 12. So he's cast out of heaven to the second heaven, to the earth. Then he's cast down. Well, this is the statement here in the book of Revelation where he's cast for a third time, three-time loser, but he's actually a four-time loser. The third-time loser is he's cast into an abyss with a seal, which is the indication that he is a prisoner of God. He's a prisoner under the highest authority, which indicates he is subject to the highest forms of judgment. He's put in the abyss for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, and we we can go to verse 7 of Revelation 20 to look at the final dealings with Satan. When the thousand years have been expired, Satan will be released from prison. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Now this is after the millennium and brings them to battle. Uh, Gog and Magog gathers them together and a number of them is as the sand of the sea. Uh, And fire comes down from heaven, destroys them, and verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever. The final end of Satan, the final end of Satan is to be cast into the lake of fire where he's destroyed along with the false prophet and um, the beast or what's left of the activities of the beast. So the whole trajectory of Satan coincides in the original beginning 
coincides with and runs parallel to the activities of God in creation. God said to Satan in Genesis chapter 3 verse 12 or verse 5, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is Christ. Enmity between all of the activities of Satan which culminate, the activities of Satan culminate in the existence of and the empowerment of the beast. So when the beast is judged and destroyed, the next thing is Satan himself is arrested, imprisoned, but he's not done yet because he has to finish out the work of mankind being able to choose. In the millennium, however, because of the purposes of God to be accomplished in the millennium, Satan is not allowed to have any influence at all on the earth during that time. But at the end of it, he's released from the prison and he's cast into, he leads a rebellion, the final rebellion. This is not um, the, uh, what is viewed as, this is not the, the time when the battle between the Lord and the armies of the beast takes place, the reference to which naturally is to the battle of Armageddon that took place in the book of Judges. This is a final battle, it's after the millennium and it, is, uh, it takes place, uh, the, the, the ones gathered together for that battle come from the four corners of the earth. And you notice with this, the birds of the air are not invited to a feast on the flesh of kings because that battle has already taken place. This is for the slaughter and destruction and final punishment of Satan together with the destruction of the forces that oppose God. It's the summation of things. Now, so I've looked at the battle of Armageddon, I've looked at the decline and fall of Satan and his ultimate destruction. Now I want, when we come back, to look at events that are meant to be accomplished during the millennium. So life in the millennium would be the next of these uh, series of messages. Join me for that. I'm Sam Solon and I'll talk to you then. Bye now.